This, I've quoted this to you before. I'm going to say a few things that I have said before um, tonight. And I'm probably going to run over a message that I brought to you eight months ago. One of the reasons is that um, I've become very aware, and something confirmed it this week, that um, you're not always hearing what I'm saying or what the others are saying, nor retaining it, much as I would like to feel that. And I also know that Jesus one day said, you've got eyes and you're seeing, you've got, you, you know, you've got eyes, but you're not actually seeing what you're looking at. You've got ears, but you're not actually hearing what you're listening to. And uh, I was a bit concerned because the number of times that I have challenged Augustine's uh, view on what we call the omnis and the imnis, you know, God knowing everything and being everywhere. And, um, somebody came out yesterday with the very phrase, but God knows everything and God's... And I'm thinking... But that's all right, because that's what Jesus said. Sometimes we have to, we forget that repetition is important. Sometimes we forget that, that we need to say things uh, many times. So it's not about whether I've got it, it's about also whether we've all got it. And I think there are some important principles, therefore, that need to be stated and restated. And so it'll be a little different, but I do want to do that tonight. Um, <clears throat> the... This is a great quote. Good souls will one day be horrified at the things they now believe of God. <clears throat> Let me say that again. Good souls will one day be horrified at the things they now believe of God. Such must take courage to forsake the false in any shape, even if it was the shape that we were raised with, even if it's the shape of understanding that was always delivered to us. If, if we discover... <clears throat> That in all of that, we find that, that, that actually God doesn't look entirely like that. Then, then we have to take courage to forsake the false in any shape, to deny their old selves in the most seemingly sacred of prejudices. I absolutely love that phrase, and I'll probably come back on it. Sacred prejudices. Think about that phrase. Sacred prejudices. A prejudice is a prejudice whether you call it sacred or not. And I'm going to talk a little bit tonight of how we have developed prejudices within the context of the church, much to our, I'll use the word shame, um, which we have labelled sacred. So it's like it's okay for us to feel this way about people or act this way towards people or think this about people um, because it's kind of sacred. We have a Bible verse to go with it. Well, I'm going to show you some things about having Bible verses to go with stuff tonight. But we have, to, we have to deny our old selves in the most seemingly sacred of prejudices and follow Jesus. Not as he is presented in the tradition of the elders, but as he is presented by himself. Um, I, again, have to talk about myself, that I, I would have said through all of my journey that I was following uh, Jesus, but I realized it was a version of Jesus greatly influenced by my version of God. And so my conclusions about uh, what Jesus was about, and therefore what was required of me, were, were tainted by all that thinking. And um, what I'm trying to do in these days is really get back that, that Jesus is the lens through which we view everything, not we view Jesus through the lens of everything, even in the context of how we understand the Bible. Um, 
and we've got to follow him in the spirit of truth. Now, in case you think that, you know, that's some upstart now, that was a guy called George MacDonald, the Scottish preacher, who was around from 1824 to 1905. So, you know, this is not some new boy on the block who I'm quoting now. This, this is a well-respected, I mean, awesome preacher and writer um, from the 1800s who, who wrote those words. And I, I find them fascinating and it intrigues me to, to think what was going through his mind uh, in the back half of the 1800s that now seems to be going through our mind now at the beginning of the 2000s. Obviously, this, this same challenge that we are addressing, if you read the writings of George MacDonald, you'll see that um, in somewhat older language, that the struggles that he was going through are the very same struggles that we're trying to address uh, as a house. And um, he encountered the same kind of uh, difficulties and obstructions and oppositions because really he was swimming against the tide. And it takes courage to do that, but I pray we'll have courage in order to do that. Um, another verse I wanted to just preface what I want to say with is, is found in Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm not going to run through the whole chapter because that's not my purpose tonight, but, but there is an incredible verse in, um, in, in, in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 9. Um, and it says these words, to some of you it will immediately make sense, to others I'll just give you a brief explanation. It says, the Holy Spirit was showing by this. So he spent the chapter describing um, all the problems of getting near to God in the old covenant system. So all the problems of a special building and, and restrictions within that building and then uh, you could only go so far if you're one thing and you could go a little further if you're something else and if, you were, if you're the one unique person born from the right family and the firstborn of that family, you could go right into the very place where they believed that God dwelled and, and God's presence was there. But the whole thing really was, was a, a big message of exclusion, uh, not inclusion. And, um, and so in Hebrews, he says this, says the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Now, the first tabernacle, a tabernacle is a tent. And when Moses was in the wilderness, he had to build a tent, which represented all this stuff that I preached about for years. And there are wonderful pictures of Christ in all that's there. And it's great, but... But the truth is when you step back and look, it's a place of exclusion. It's a place of, of, of limitation. It's a place where only the privileged get access. And so the message there was that, that something that God is doing, which is, which is the most holy, that's, that's, that's God himself, encountering God himself, he said, couldn't even be seen while ever the first tabernacle was still standing. Now, he goes on to talk about that sole ceremony and structure and, you know, doing the right washings, bringing the right implements, in our, singing the right songs, coming to the building at the right time. Basically, if you did all the right things, then you could, you could get the benefits of the one who could have access, but you never really got access. And so what, what he's really saying here is that while ever that old system of understanding of God is left standing, you are never going to encounter the God who Jesus came to reveal. Now here was my problem. I, I have tried to meet the Jesus who God came to reveal and tried to do it by re-erecting some of those old things. Now, 
again, because God is gracious and kind, God, God encounters us in our journey and in our weakness. And the lovely thing about God is you can be getting it wrong and still meet him because it was never based on you getting it right. Okay. So, so I'm not saying that I've only just discovered you know, the kindness of God and the goodness of God. But what I am saying is I realized that God met me in kindness when he was still bringing me to an understanding that, that something of that old system and understanding and structure, um, it, it has to be dismantled and taken down if we're going to have a full revelation of who God really is. That's why, that's why God's glory was not revealed anymore in temple or synagogue. His glory was revealed in Jesus, okay? So you didn't go to the temple or the synagogue to encounter God. You, you met Jesus to encounter God. The word was made flesh. It was a whole different system. So I just wanted to mention that tonight because um, that's one of the reasons for those of you who understand why uh, I am committed so desperately to dismantling some things so that we can try and find our way into that place that, that, that this calls the most holy place, which is where we, we see the Abba of Jesus, the revelation of who God wanted to be through the life of Jesus. Because that whole system was built on disqualification and exclusivity. Um, but, but here's the wonder of it, because you say, well, why should that be? Because through the severity of inaccessibility, okay, the, the understanding that I can't get as near as I want to get, there was a point in that. God, God actually wanted us to feel that. Um, there's always purpose in what God does. God wanted us to feel the severity of inaccessibility. We, I can't get to where I want to be. Um, but he did that so that we would be drawn to the glory and, and the, of the truth of, of qualification and inclusivity that comes through the work of Christ because it's total, complete and finished and done. So, you know, we have been, we have been given the privilege to, to experience something through Christ that I want us to take full benefit of. So, um, I want to get into to what I want to talk about tonight from, from the book of Acts. Let, let me preface that again by repeating something I, I mentioned again just a few weeks ago and we were drawing on the board here that uh, Martin Luther said, it seems a small matter to mingle the law and the gospel faith and works, but it creates more mischief than a man's brain can conceive. What that really means, and what Martin Luther meant, is, is that we have messed with the gospel. And, um, you know, I, I am in a role where my responsibility is to, to share and deliver the gospel, and I, I would have to say that I have been guilty of that sin, not knowingly, but the more you understand, you have to acknowledge where you were of a gospel that has been messed with, that was not as big as it should be, didn't reach as far as it should reach, didn't, didn't express the goodness of God as good as it should have done. There's a great statement today that I tweeted, Chris and I had been, been talking about it, that, that um, let me read it to you if I can find it, because it, um, I think this is important. Uh, let me see. I don't know if I've got it here. Just bear with me one moment. Okay. Um, there. We revel in the greatness and power of God simply because we see the greatest achievement in life as greatness and power. 
again, I want that to sink in. Right? The part of God we revel the most in, which is the greatness and power, is because we see the greatest achievement in life as greatness and power. But is that the gospel? And so I also, I also tweeted this. Listen to this. The humility of God may well be his greatest attribute, yet the one least acknowledged. The humility of God may well be his greatest attribute, but the one least acknowledged. Because that was raised, most of our conversation was about the greatness of God and the power of God. And God is great and God does have power. But actually the greatness and the power of God is in his humility. That he would strip himself of all that authority and power and become human flesh like us and subject himself to every torment, every temptation, every issue that humanity could ever face. That God becoming a baby out of the womb of a woman, you know, God made flesh dwelling among us. Emmanuel, God with us. And, uh, and one of the revelations of understanding the gospel this way is, and, and this is what makes some people go all glazed in their eyes, is that it draws you away from wanting to present a God of greatness and power and pushes you more and more to present the God of humility. And the reason we don't like that is because if we have a God of greatness and power, that means we have greatness and power. But if we have a God of humility... It means the greatest demand on us is the same spirit of humility. And of course, that's what then allows you to fully receive the grace of God. Because if you come in humility, you need grace. If you come in strength and power, we're always boasting about, well, God should love me because I'm so great and I'm so powerful. You know, and I read so many scriptures and I do so many things and sparks flash from my fingers. And, and in, a, in a strange way, what happens then, we begin to redefine our acceptability before God that he's still based on works, it's still based on what I do. But there's a wonderful sense of humility to God, a, a wonderful graciousness, um, even to submit his world into our hands in the first place, this wonderful humility of God. So, so in pursuing this... Um, uh, that's what I mean by when Martin Luther said about mixing those things that we, we've actually messed with the gospel. And again, one of my favorite quotes from Brennan Manning. We try to dim the blinding brightness of its meaning because the gospel seems too good to be true. Uh, and so, sadly, the conclusion is it, it can't be true then. This gospel you're preaching can't be true because it's blinding in its brightness. So let's, let's just, just follow a little journey here of, of a couple of things that are important. This is fascinatingly important. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says these words, then, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So we've got a basic image here. I know it's poetic and dramatic in heaven of you know this encounter and and it's talking here about who we know as satan or the devil that old serpent and um, the bible calls him the accuser okay uh, for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our god night and day so he is the accuser and what accusers do is accuse because the fascinating thing about that, and I can't emphasize this enough at this time in our journey, is that the Greek word dead that is translated accuser and accusers is the Greek word katagoros. Katagoros. 
Um, and of course, it's not difficult for you to figure out what English word we derived from the Greek word kategoros. Of course, it's the word to categorize. And so, what happened here in the translation is um, the word was softened because it didn't read as well to say, for the categorizer of our brothers who categorizes them before our God night and day, doesn't, doesn't poetically read quite as much. And so, as you find many times if you study the Greek, and the, particularly the Greek more than the Hebrew in Scripture, we, we, we dumb stuff down, but in dumbing it down, we present something into the gospel that leads us down the wrong path. So now we see, we see the devil, Satan out here, accusing people. But, but if you realize that accusation is to categorize, and of course you only categorize for one reason, and that is so that you can judge. You only judge for one reason, that's so you can condemn. And you only condemn for one reason, and that's so you can punish. So all judgments begin with categorization. If we don't categorize, we don't judge. So when Jesus said, don't judge, or you will be judged, the key to not judging people is not to categorize them. Don't put them into categories, okay? Don't categorize them as in or out, or haves and have-nots. Or even if you take it to its fullest extent, we don't categorize people according to what they do. And that's the big problem, okay? So here we have the woman who Jesus talked about, the Bible talks about in John, of, of a woman who had, had been in an adultery relationship with a guy who's taken, of course, most of you know the story, I've talked about it, others have thrown at the feet you know, of Jesus and they're saying, you know, in Moses' law, such a one should be... Um, stoned to death, what do you say? Well, without getting into the whole story, my only point I want to make on that is that the people who were accusing her accused her because what they saw was what she had done, right? So they saw an adulteress. Jesus saw a woman. And because Jesus saw a woman, he didn't categorize so he could say, where are your accusers? Because there was no accusation in his heart. Now, according to their old law, they were absolutely right. But you see, the thing about law is if there is no accusation in law, there can be no condemnation. So it's not that, that you're saying the law shouldn't have been there or was never there. It's just if I don't accuse you of anything, the law can have no effect on you. So Jesus was saying, do you want to know how all those old laws have no effect on people? Don't accuse them. But you see, we carry that even to ourselves. So we categorize ourselves. For example, silly words like, I'm not a very good Christian. Or I think I am a good Christian. What have we done? We've just categorized, okay? So, so our measurement becomes a source of accusation. It's either the accusation that creates pride in us or it's the accusation that creates despair in us and condemnation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because we categorize. Uh, and the truth is, I, I love Paul said something, it's either in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it might be chapter 6, but it's somewhere around there and you'll find it from the words. I, I can never remember this scripture even though I can quote it where it is. Um, but Paul said, Paul said this words, he, he said, don't judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes because he will judge all things according to the intents of the heart. Paul said, I don't judge you. And he said, I don't even judge myself. And he said, well, what was he saying there? What he was saying is, if I begin to categorize myself, 
The only thing that can emerge out of that is accusation. For example, if I categorize myself as I'm a really good Christian and I live a good life, I've immediately categorized you, right? I haven't said anything to you or about you, but by what I've said about myself, I've categorized you. And so what's going to happen? You see, James is again going to think, oh, I wish I was as good a Christian as Anth. I'm obviously failing here. I obviously don't know God as much. Now, I didn't say, you don't know God well enough. You're not doing enough. All I said is, you know, I consider myself to be a good Christian. I I believe I'm living the Lord's way and I've put condemnation on him. Why? There's accusation because I categorize myself. So so in the church, there shouldn't even be self-categorization. It matters not whether we think we're a good church or bad church or whether I think I'm a good Christian or a bad Christian. It matters not. We judge nothing before the appointed time because the moment I do that, somebody's going to feel accused and therefore condemned and therefore sentenced because invariably we take the thing on. So categorize means accusation. Accusation means condemnation and condemnation means judgment and judgment means sentence and invariably that process carries on. And so we either put somebody out of our life circle of trust and experience or we put ourselves outside of someone else's life circle of trust and experience because that becomes the, that becomes the sentence. So what I'm really trying to get through to you is that when we do this with ourselves or anyone categorize, we actually do the devil's work. Hard to sink in. Right? Nowhere does it say that Jesus is an accuser or God is an accuser or God will condemn. But it does say that about the devil. That This is the whole description of how he works and why lives get destroyed when he works and why then we destroy our own lives or destroy the lives of others when we follow this process. This is at the core of how anything devilish or satanic works, categorization. And so we can go into great debates about, you know, who should be allowed in what and who shouldn't be allowed and who should be and what should be the measure of judgment. Here's, I want to learn from Jesus, right? Okay, Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. The Ten Commandments are hilarious, I love it. I, I, I've never seen God's humor in the Ten Commandments until, until this last month. Okay? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't have any other idols. Don't covet your neighbor's donkey. I mean, it's like, where did that come from? So don't look over your neighbor's fence and think, I like his lawnmower better than mine. That what well, you don't realise there is there is a there is a kind of godly humour in that. That that you know we've gone from don't have any idols to to you know be happy with your own lawnmower, not your neighbour's neighbour's lawnmower. It's like that there's there's something in there that God's almost saying, okay, here, here's what this does, and here's how here's how this can get really really silly and bind you up so badly because where do you stop with all these things? So I even see now in the Ten Commandments. Um, the humor of God, funnily enough. And if you read the book of Job, you'll find it as well, because if you look at what God asks Job about questions like... So, the deal is this, that, 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 that 
categorization is at the core of all judgment and condemnation. So even if I said nothing else tonight, if I never took you one step further and you learn this, you will free yourself and you'll free others. Oh, I know where we were with the woman, weren't we? <laughs> See, it's this whole issue. Jesus saw a woman, not an adulteress. If we could just learn that. Jesus saw in a guy called Zacchaeus a man, not a thief. Zacchaeus was a thief. Jesus saw in Judas a person, not a betrayer. Now all these people were those things. But Jesus never saw them as that. And when you don't see them as that, you don't treat them as that because you treat them like a, a person, like a man, like a woman. And if there's one thing wonderful about the life of Jesus, it's he treated people as people. And if there's one thing that got up the nose of the institution and the religious group, it's because Jesus treated people as people. And when you treat people as people, you're not categorizing them. And that really upset them because they felt Jesus should be seeing an adulteress. She should be seeing a, a, a Roman tax collector. Jesus should be seeing this. She should be seeing that. Or in other words, we should see people according to what they do. And I believe that's become one of the sins of the church because we have then developed systems that have been built to deal with what people do and not who they are. Uh, I don't know whether I should mention this, but I'll do it anyway. You can decide. Um, Matthew chapter 18 is a, is is a, within there. There's a little portion of scripture that a lot of people in church call it um, the 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 process of discipline. Okay, because without taking you there, here's what it says. It says, if you find your brother in a fault, just go to him between the two of you. Now, it doesn't say what the fault is, but what it does say is a brother. So the fault is not the focus. Do you understand? The brother's the focus. Go to him. Have a chat with him. What you're really saying is, look, there's some destructive behavior patterns going on here, uh, but I love you. I want to talk to you about it. Then he says, if you won't listen to you, if it's a bit thick or a bit stupid, you know, of which you all know my feelings on that, that, that... um, I don't think sin is the problem. I think stupid is the problem. Take someone else with you. So, you know, if it's Dave, we sit with Dave and say, look, Dave, I think this is a kind of destructive, mate. We've got to, when you figure this out, <clears throat> and then it says if, <clears throat> if you won't listen to them, then, um, you know, you basically take it to the, the leaders or involved because the process is we're trying to help Dave. We're not, we're not trying to accuse Dave. We're trying to help Dave. And then it says, if he won't do that, then you take it to the church. Or in other words, we all get involved because we care. And there's more I could say about that, but I won't. Um, Because I want to come to this bit that then says, and if he won't listen to the church, to the the bigger group of us, it says, treat that one like you would treat a tax collector or a pagan. Okay, now here's, here's how I was always taught that. And here how I have expressed that, not in recent years, you know, God slapped some sense into me, painfully, but slapped some sense into me. And here's how I've had it done to me. 
Okay, so here's the deal. If I'm going to I've got to treat you as a tax collector and a pagan. Well, of course, he uses tax collector because to the people Jesus was talking to, tax collector was like, you know, it was Because tax collectors were helping the Romans in occupied Judea. So they were Jews. They were one of us, but basically helping the enemy. You know, they were like taking our money and forcing the taxes. And of course, what made that worse, not only were they collecting taxes for the Caesar or for the governor, they were also, of course, putting a little on top of that, a little VAT on the taxes for themselves. Thank you. So they were hated in society. So, so when, you know, when the Bible says that about tax collector, you've got to understand us. I mean, we don't particularly like tax collectors, to be perfectly honest, but, you know, it's a job they have to do. But then it was like... And of course, pagans, they understood, because even, even their cousins, the Samaritans, who lived in the same country, but they despised, they considered to be pagans, okay? Non, non, not only not God worshippers, but, but who had given themselves over to worship something other than God. So this is the kind of scenario. So here's our interpretation, because we categorize in, okay? Here's how it was always interpreted to me, how I've interpreted it and how I've suffered from it, was that what you have to do then is you put them out. You treat them tax collector, pagan, that's it. Have nothing to do with them. Until you realize that the guy who's writing this is a tax collector called Matthew who would have been considered a pagan because he was working against the kingdom of Israel. And now this guy is saying, listen, if, if, if your brother is self-destructing and you've done everything in your power and he still doesn't change, here's the last resort. Treat him like Jesus treated me. Right? Now remember, he's in, he's a disciple. Treat him like Jesus treated me. In other words, I was loved, I was nurtured, I was accepted, I was cared for because Jesus didn't see a tax collector, he didn't see a pagan, he saw a man called Matthew and I'm that man and now I'm writing this to you. So the final discipline was, okay, if you're not gonna listen, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna show you more love, we're gonna show you more kindness, we're gonna appeal to you out of grace more than we ever did before, we're gonna reach out to you, we're gonna embrace you, we're gonna try and absorb you within the circle of all that's going on in us and let love and grace and kindness change you see see the problem is when you live in this spirit of accusation of categorizing your interpretation even of scripture is going to be influenced by that and so we begin we then begin to see that God is just like Satan And we sit there feeling God's accusing me of not being a good enough Christian. God's accusing me of not praying enough. God's accusing me of not doing enough. And, and we don't use those words, but again, we're not very honest as people. But if we really reflect that back, we have to understand the sense of condemnation that we feel and inadequacy can only come from... You can't feel inadequate unless you feel condemned. And you can't feel condemned unless you feel accused. And you can't be accused unless you've been categorized. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so, so that kind of feeling in our hearts always originates 
from, from this one point of categorizing, categorizing myself, categorizing others. And of course, here's the other problem. When I begin to categorize God, so when I categorize God, if I categorize God as being severe and demanding, right? There's only one thing that can happen. I can only see God then as being accusing and judging and condemning. And, and lots of people live there. Why? Because we, we categorized God like we would categorize other gods. That's why I use this phrase just so often. He's an ungodlike God. That's why I said to you, I said it to you at the beginning that his greatest glory is in his humility. Not his greatness and power. God is great and God is powerful. But God is not insecure needing the world to know that he's great and he's powerful. Now the problem is once we categorize, we think what the world needs to see is God is great and powerful. But actually his strength is in his humility. The power of God is in the cross. Right? The power of God is in the manger. The power of God is in Jesus walking the streets. So God, by the Spirit, points to Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't point to how amazing he can do stuff. He points to Jesus because it's in his humility. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so I'm pushing this point hard because I want you to remember this, that to categorize is at the root of, of all condemnation and all sentencing. Okay, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Okay? We can't do it to one another. We mustn't do it to ourselves. We mustn't do it to any part of the community. So God doesn't see gay people or straight people or adulterers or thieves or liars or cheats or murderers. God sees people, okay? Now, they all may be issues. That doesn't mean because God sees people that all behaviors are, are approved of, okay? There is a difference between acceptance and approval. I want you also to get that, okay? Acceptance and approval are two different things. Now the problem is, if we come from disapproval, then we can't accept. But if we accept, we can deal with the areas of approval. So the truth is we can be in relationship whether I approve of what your life is or not. If I begin with acceptance, but you see, then we can misunderstand and some will misunderstand and say, well, because you accept, you approve. Then actually we say, no, we, we, because we accept, we can live when we... Don't approve, and we might be in a Matthew 18 situation where we think, do you know what, this, this, this issue in your life or this behavior is a destructive issue that, that will lead to X. And we might try all kinds of things to resolve that, and if we're not successful, what do we do? We treat them like a tax collector or a pagan. We love more, we pour more grace, we accept more. We don't put out, we bring in, okay? Jesus said, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, not stay away from me till you've fixed it. Okay, so is this making sense? So the accuser, the categorizer, it says, is hurled down. So the heart of God is to hurl that spirit down. And a lot of what we've been doing here is to hurl that down. I, I, I thought this would be really popular. But when people start thinking of the implications and who you might have to accept and to what level and why and how, lots of people don't like it. Why? Because we prefer the power and greatness thing and prefer to have the, the, the right to put people out rather than lose the right yeah. and be called by humility to bring people in and, and to live with the pain of that. 
How many of you know walking, walking a journey with someone can be, can be more pain than it is pleasure, particularly when what is happening within that relationship is, is, is disapproved of by yourself or you are disapproving of each other. It can be full of pain and wrought with pain and the, the danger is that we want to, we want to not do that because we think this can't be right because all this is doing is causing pain and difficulty and it's taking too long. Okay, well remember Jesus in the garden. Father, if it's possible, this really sucks. I'd rather not do it this way, I'd rather not do it this time, is really what Jesus was saying. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but uh, I'm not going to let the pain of it suggest to me that this is without profit or this is not the correct way to go. So Jesus embraced the difficulty, embraced the pain of the journey, the pain of, of the, the, the acceptance, but even though there was disapproval of what, what it would cost, the ability to stay with that through the pain and walk through the pain. So, so, so we can't let pain push us into the process of categorizing. We have to, if necessary, we, you know, what does the Bible mean when it says bear one another's burdens? It means this is really tough and this is really heavy and I don't really want to... You got yourself into this, why should I have to... I remember one of the saddest um, uh, realities I had to encounter was, you know, we, we had some difficulty, was how many people ran for cover. How many people didn't want to be associated with me at that time because they wanted to see how this was going to go and that, that hurt me a lot, I'll be honest, it was very painful. Um, because it, it was, I'll bear your burden as long as it's just like, you know, oh, well, I'll pray for you, you know, just little issue going on in the church there. Pray for you, bro. You know, when the, when the mud was flying, when the burden's heavy, and when it's going to cause you perhaps to come to breaking point yourself if you bear that burden, not necessarily because, oh, well, I'm just so concerned, but I mean because of the accusation you might receive and how you might be categorized and what me people might say about you and, and what they say you're not dealing with and you're not addressing. Th those are the burdens we have to learn when we get free of categorization of the burdens that we bear for one another. And uh, that's the Jesus way. That, that's, that's the righteous way. That's the... We can't run, we can't move, because if, if I walk away, the part of the burden that I'm bearing might fall, or worse, it comes on someone else. It's you know, a wonderful thing, if we're all, if we're all bearing, y'all understand the mechanics of that many hands make light work, as the Chinese apostle said. Truth is, the more, the more people who get under a weight than a burden, the lighter that burden is. It's amazing what the multiplied strength of a group, that's why the Bible says two are better than one. And one, one chases a thousand, but two chase 10,000 because there is, a, there is a, um, a law of physics of multiplication that actually when we do things together, what we can accomplish is much greater than, than the simple total of Anth plus Dave plus Chris plus Chloe, right? So it's not like we can then lift four times what one of us could lift. We can actually lift multiplied times because there is a, a law of physics that begins to work there in the synergy. So, so the truth is when, when we're talking about bearing one another's burdens, 
Anytime any of us drop out, it just causes more burden on the others. But the more of us come together, the more the burden becomes light. So when Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it's because he was saying, if you take my yoke on you, you've just come into team. So Father, Son, and Spirit, and you, right? So we think, oh, take my yoke upon you, so here I go. No, what he was saying is, okay, when you take my yoke, which, is, which was a, a way to carry burdens in those days, it didn't mean that you go on your own. It means that you're yoked to me, and I'm yoked to the Father, and the Father's yoked to the Spirit. So it's not like, here you go, this is just a little bit easier to bear because you decided to follow me. He's saying, no, here's the deal. What happens is the whole burden comes onto the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, and you, and the four of us together then bear a multiplied amount of weight and burden because we've taken that yoke on us. So I had no intention of saying any of that, but, but I think it's important. So do you understand why I was so keen at the beginning when I talked about George MacDonald and he used that amazing phrase about sacred prejudices? That how we excuse our categorization is through sacred prejudices. Um, prejudices of people and, and things and behaviours that we make them sacred because we feel that we have um, an authority to allow us to do that. But categorising is categorising whether you have a favourite Bible verse for it or not. Okay? So, let me, let me deal quickly then with this. Acts chapter 8, okay? The church is beginning to grow, Let, let's, let's, let's phrase that differently. This, this group of Jesus followers, these, these people who've caught something incredible in their heart, who, can I just say something, just something came into my mind, so forgive me, I'm just, I've got to chase this. I was to Rob Cunningham in, in, uh, in Australia, and he said, Rob asked me, because he thinks I'm just this brilliant, amazing person, which it's like, you're right, you're right. It's categorizing, see? So he feels a lesser person because he categorizes me. Um, Rob says, have you ever thought about it, that this guy in John chapter 3 called Nicodemus, who's part of the priesthood, who comes to Jesus, who could only be what he was because he was a firstborn, right? Jesus says to this guy, if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. We forget all this stuff, but he's thinking, but I am a firstborn, but I am in line for the priesthood. Therefore, did Jesus mean you've got to be born again? If you become a secondborn, do you get that? Some of you need to get that. In other words, if you become unqualified, you become qualified. Isn't that a fascinating thought? We've taken that. Unless a man is born again, it's no wonder he said, what must I go the second time in my mother's womb? Because he realized if he goes in there, he's not coming out as the firstborn, so he can't be what he was. He has to be something different, but that something different is considered something lesser, but actually it was something great. Do you understand what I'm saying? So even there in Jesus, he's, he's saying that, that, that being the first and being the top is not it. I just thought I'd mention that. I don't know why it just came in my head. It's a great thought, isn't it? So, here these Jesus people. And um, they spread as far as this place called Samaria, which was, um, I've already mentioned to you, Samaria was kind of, they, the Jews considered them, they were kind of cousins because they were from the same stock. But they had 
in their bloodline um, had some mixed race, okay? So they were considered by the Jews to be, they were half-breeds, they were mixed-breeds, they were not pure Jews. It, it really, there were aspects of Jewish society which were most unpleasant, seriously, you know, it drives me nuts when it's like some people are sort of, if we all become Jews again, we'll be okay. There's some distasteful stuff going on here. Categorization, that they used to have a statement, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. It would be like saying, the people from Europe have no dealing with the people from Kingsway West. Depart from me, ye Kingsway Westers. That's, that's the kind of deal. It, it was just ridiculous and, and mean and categorizing. We're better than you, we're in, you haven't got it. And uh, you wonder why Jesus did several things uh, that incorporated Samaritans, because he was really getting up the nose of the religious community. <laughs> As we used to say, we were saying, put that in your pipe and smoke it. So, this spread of, this spread of the good news has reached, has reached Samaria, which you have to understand in that context was quite radical because the Jews were thinking, man, you, you shouldn't be with those people. Why? Because they were categorized. Okay? So, so they're kind of pushing the boat out. But then, but then Philip, one of the guys who's there, the young guys, God speaks to him and tells him he has to go out into the desert because God wants him to meet somebody. So, you know, I'm cutting a long story short for the sake of time. But, but uh, Philip starts out on his way. And um, as he's out in the desert... All, there's lots of remarkable things about that, but he, he meets this guy who is called an Ethiopian eunuch, okay? He's called an Ethiopian because he was from Ethiopia, and he's called a eunuch because he was a eunuch. Um, the Ethiopian bit, you can probably understand. So what you don't understand is that um, there is a point here that this, this man was, was dark-skinned. He was, I mean, in essence, black. He was... Ethiopian, he was African, um, and in Acts 21, um, um, Peter, dead, or Paul, dared to bring a dark-skinned Greek man into the temple compound, and they almost stoned him to death. I mean, that's the categorizing, see? And I have to say, it still happens in the church, okay? So Philip meets this man, he, he, he's... He's, he's black, that's a problem to, the, to the, the Jews. He is foreign, that's a problem to the Jews. Um, and the other thing that was a problem to them is that he was a eunuch, which um, basically means either, you know, it was either radical or part, which either means, you know, some people were eunuchs because all their bits were missing. Um, some were eunuchs because just the testicles were missing. But either way... Um, what you don't appreciate is you could spot a eunuch easily because he now has no testosterone flowing through his body. So here you've got this male who is now uh, most likely bald, almost certainly bald, and hairless. And of course, the problem is without testosterone, he also develops more feminine features, and invariably, his voice would go up a few notes. So... The truth is, this, you're not going to hide this fact, okay? And uh, to most people, it was unacceptable, and there, there are certain um, connections in today's society, which I don't have to paint you pictures, but would have been made back then. Um, of course, these, these people were 
made that way because there were two jobs that you could get them to do without worrying. One was to look after the, the king's harem for obvious reasons. Ain't nothing going to happen to the girls. If you've got this eunuch looking after them, the girls are safe, okay? And the other thing in this case, which was that um, uh, Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, had this guy as her chief treasurer because um, he would be in charge of the treasury because if you were a eunuch, you'd been pulled out of your family, made a eunuch, you couldn't get married, you couldn't have a family, you had no descendants, therefore you had no home and no life, so why did you need the money from the treasury? There's nothing to do with it. So that's why that, that was the two main jobs that these eunuchs would, would have. So he, he goes out in the desert, the guy's riding home, he's been down to Jerusalem to worship is what the Bible says. His stereo's blasting out in the chariot and he's playing U2, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Which, so Philip was able to spot him quite easily. Anyway, he, he comes to the chariot and what you've got to understand is, is that, that this man had been to the temple in Jerusalem and most, almost without doubt, it would have been a difficult and distressing experience. And I'm going to explain why in a moment. It all sounds lovely being to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. But think about what his experience was when he visited what was in the Jewish um, mind, not just the church, but the biggest church. It was the temple. It was the big one. It was the big ministry. But his visit there was distressing. I, I wonder how many people really, in honesty, visit church and like this eunuch are on their way home in their car, on the bus, on the train or whatever, and their experience has actually, in all honesty, been difficult and, and distressing. Why? Because, because they've encountered the same categorization that this man encountered. So, so Philip, Philip goes to talk to this guy. And the problems, pro, pro, no, the problems, the problems troubling this man's mind, um, which were mostly about himself and his condition and his journey, because remember, his reason for going down there was that he'd come to worship. He's, he's looking for something. He's looking for someone. And, and he's not finding it in the church. Now, hence the reason why, if we get off our eye horse and look statistically, how many people statistically would consider themselves as spiritual but not necessarily believing in God. Spiritual, but not necessarily going to church. Why is it? Because very often, the experience encountered in the context of church has been distressing and troubling for reasons that we'll explain in a moment as we've gone out with here. So he was a man of color. He, he was a Gentile, uh, otherwise known as a dog. Um, just think about it. The, the, the these wonderful Jews, God-fearing Jews, worshipping in the temple, bringing the sacrifices, called everybody who wasn't a Jew a Gentile. That's mean. That's not nice. That's unacceptable. It's like saying, you're not English, you're not Welsh, you're not Scottish, you're not French, you're not, you're not Spanish, you're not Italian, you're all just foreigners. 
I want you to catch the spirit of this. And this, this is the atmosphere that this guy's picking up. Right? Sort of welcome, but not welcome. We want you to become part of us, but not if you're going to be like that. Not if you're going to be black. Not if you're going to be a Gentile. Not if you're going to be a eunuch. But we would like you to be part of us. We'd love you to be part of us. So, of course, the, the slang name for that was dog. It was so unkind that they actually called these people dogs. In fact, again, my friend Rob Cunningham, was, he was so sharp on this because he said, well... He said, you do realize, he said, that the unit was dyslexic. No disrespect to anybody dyslexic. He said, because uh, they called him a Gentile dog, but he thought he was coming, he thought he was coming looking for God and that he was allowed in the court of the genitals, not the court of the Gentiles. <laughs> because, you see, the thing was, at the temple, he wasn't allowed to enter the temple. He was only allowed in a very little space as part of the temple courtyard called the, called the court of the Gentiles. Now that sounds wonderful. We've made room for you. Look here, the court of the Gentiles. That, that was a, a, a very subtle way of saying, but you're not one of us, right? You're not, you're not really welcome here unless you change. But look, we've got this. You can be part of our community. Look here, the court of the Gentiles. What? Yes, sit over there. Just, just not nice. I love that though about court of the genitals. He thought he was going to the court of the genitals. His hope was lifted. <laughs> so. This problem as well, bigger problem, that the man was actually a, a eunuch. We've, we've explained what one was. And given all these factors, the overriding message was we cannot and will not accept or engage with people in your condition. We have a scripture to back us up, and unless you change, we cannot and will not be identified with you. And here's the scripture, okay? Deuteronomy 23. Verse 1. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. That's our guy. So I've got a Bible verse for it. Okay, in the, in the message, no eunuch is to enter the congregation of God. Okay, what's our guy? Okay, we've got scripture for this. Remember what I said? Divine prejudices, sacred prejudices. Oh, we've got scripture for this. You can't come in. Okay, unless you change. Verse 18 of Leviticus 21. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who has damaged testicles. That's our guy. Verse 21, he must not come near to offer the food of his God. Verse 23 of Leviticus 21, because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate the sanctuary. So, again, what was the man's experience down in Jerusalem? Everything was working against his acceptance. In fact, they had scriptures to show that he was excluded. Basically, no hope. But the sad thing was, and this is part of my point of categorizing, and I want you to think about this. Like it or not, this person could do absolutely nothing to change any aspect of his condition. Yeah. I, I have spent much of my life being discompassionate towards certain conditions because my view would be that you can do something about this and you ought to do something about it and I think in some cases that may be true but I also believe in some cases it is not true and it's not for me to to discredit that view it's for me to accept and understand that and leave that with God because this eunuch is a classic 
the Bible says he cannot come into the community of God's people. The Bible says he cannot offer an offering. The Bible says he cannot worship. The Bible, the Bible says he cannot, okay? And what it needs here is not a bunch of people going through the Matthew 18 process and saying, okay, clear off. Because you haven't changed, you won't change, you're not going to change. He needed a bunch of people with some compassion. So, so, see, God was really saying to Philip, I want you to reach someone who in others' interpretation of Scripture and the holiness of God would say he is excluded unless he changes. Problem is he can't change one single element of who he is. And I'm, I'm appealing to you for even greater compassion than we've already had to all kinds of people in all things. Why? Because if we're not categorizing, we can show compassion to all because we don't see them as what they do. We see them as a person. And when we see them as a person, that's when grace starts to emerge. I'm going to show you something remarkable before we finish tonight. So here's the deal. The problem is he can't change one single element of who he is. Are we agreed on that? So unless the rules relating to his exclusion are overruled, he has no hope. So here's the classic. So what we just read in the Bible has to be overruled or he has no hope. But we were raised that he can't overrule Scripture. But Scripture overrules itself. Some of you don't believe that, but I'm going to show you, Okay. He lacks the necessary parts to qualify. His sincere desire is to find the grace of God. And he's met with this loud not welcome here. So, 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 so Philip goes with him. I love, I love this bit about verse 29 of, of, of uh, Acts chapter 8. It says, Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Or in other words, join this man on this part of his journey. Join this man on this part of his journey. This is a big key I've had to learn because... I was wired and trained that it was join me on this part of my journey, join the church on this part of its journey, okay? That's just the way we were wired and that, that's, that's how I saw it and therefore that gives you a certain attitude towards people because the whole desire is to get them to be part of this journey but the whole message to Philip was join this man on this part of his journey. There's something very powerful about joining people on that part of their journey. And having the compassion to, to stay with that person for however long you have the privilege to do so um, which in Philip's case was enough time for this man to feel loved, accepted, forgiven that it was done and for his heart to make a cry that it, from the frustration that he was going through, from the, from the negative experience that he had of God, right? That's now going to be transformed. So the eunuchs reading a scripture from Isaiah 53, which any of you that were raised around church will be so familiar with this, you don't even have to open the page of the Bible to read it. In Isaiah 53, I think it's verse 3, the eunuch's reading this, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before her shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, now the deal is, you see, most eunuchs weren't eunuchs because they chose to be eunuchs. Most eunuchs were chosen to be, not, not they didn't choose to be, they were 
they were taken. So, so here's this guy reading, hey, hang on a minute, who is this guy? I was led like a lamb to the slaughter. I, I was like a lamb before a shearer. I wasn't allowed to open my mouth. And he reads, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice for who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And he's thinking, I was humiliated. I was deprived of justice. Nobody gave me a choice. This, this is how I was. And uh, who's going to speak of my descendants? Because I can't have kids. I can't have a family. My family name is over. It's like my life has been taken from the earth. And so it's no wonder he said to Philip, Who's, who's this guy talking about himself or someone else? Because, because he thinks, this guy has, has been through what I've been through. So it says that, that Philip begin, began with this very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, good news. Now, I also like in there that it says Philip began with this, that very passage. So it means Philip didn't stop at that passage. Philip began there, but he was going to tell him something else. There's something else we're going to get to in just a brief moment. And what he told him was good news. Now, of course, the contrast is this guy's come back from church. His experience of God in that church has not helped him. He hasn't found what he's looking for, but now he hears the good news. So there is a good news that is not necessarily gleaned by some people who are seeking to present God to us, okay? So whatever Philip said changed how this man saw God and, and in that revelation changed how he saw himself and, and so what happened next was great. Some of you love this bit because it says, verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water, why shouldn't I be baptized? In other words, this is fantastic news and whatever this baptism thing is, let's do it. And then, of course, we have verse 37, which is why I've gone this way to tell you that we messed with the gospel is what Martin Luther was saying, because verse 37 cannot be found in any of the original manuscripts of Acts chapter 8. It is just not there. It's not. You will not find any original manuscript. Verse 37 does not exist. That has been added in. Of course, that supports some of our view of how we think the gospel is applied. Philip, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the man said, I answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, he may have done and he may have believed that, but it was not a requirement of Philip in the good news for this man to be baptized. You should go directly to verse 38. The man says, verse 37, anything reason why I shouldn't be baptized? Well, if, you are, if you're categorizing, Yes. But if you're not, Philip says, gave orders, stop the chariot. Takes him down in the water. There you go, son. And he baptizes him. And he leaves the rest to God. The man then goes on his way. He leaves the rest to God. He hasn't categorized him. He's baptized him. He leaves the rest to God. And from his journey, he began. Now, here's the good news that that he told him, okay, so how many of you know that if there were no chapters in the original manuscript, okay, so like no verses, so if you were reading, you weren't thinking like a okay, chapter 53, chapter 50, you just, it was continuous. So Philip began at this very passage and, and preached to him the good news. How many of you know that chapter 56 would come after chapter 53, okay, does that sense? 
So he began in chapter 53, okay, this bit the guy was reading that he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so I can see Philip reading on and then he says, okay, dude, but listen, have, have a look here. Let's, let's flip on the manuscript or whatever it was. And we come to what we know as chapter 56. Now remember I said to you, unless the rules are overruled, this man can't come in. Now, think how serious that is because we've just read in Deuteronomy and Leviticus rules that were spoken about eunuchs and foreigners that are there that exclude them. So something has to overrule the rules. Listen, the good news is that God overrules the rules. Now, some of you are going to struggle with that because you're going to say, but does not that mean that the Bible contradicts itself? I would say, no, it doesn't. That would be my view, okay? I don't think the Bible contradicts itself. I think what the Bible does is it creates contrast. So there's a difference between conflict and contrast. If I don't show you anything other than white, how do you know that white is white. If you don't know a thing is black and I make it white, how do you know I transformed it from black to white unless you have a contrast? The law was God's contrast, right? So that we could see from what the law says what grace really means. That we could see from the law the contrast of what works will not get you but what grace will give you. So why is the two trees in the garden? Not because the tree of life is in conflict with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there is a contrast. So we can see the contrast of what life looks like in relationship with God and the conflict of what it looks like if you try to live it by right and wrong and good and evil. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so throughout the Bible you find things you think, well, that's, that's in conflict, that's just contradictory, but it's not, it's a contrast, it's not a contradiction, it's a contrast. So God says, okay, here's the deal, here's, here's how it would work if you work by, by, by categorizing. Black people, foreigners, eunuchs, gays, straights, adulterers, liars, idolaters, Get all this and not getting in. Right? There's just no way. But he gives, the, he gives the contrast to show that then, but what grace says is that all may live because Christ has died. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm making sense. So, so the Bible's not contradicting, it's contrasting. So remember, Leviticus and Deuteronomy are saying, this guy, there's just no way. He just can't. He hasn't got the bits. He's the wrong color. He's just... He, and he can't change himself, so he can't come in, right? Now listen to this. This, this is then, imagine Philip's now reading this to the guy, and then you wonder why he said, Whew, let's, can I get baptized? Isaiah 56, okay, Isaiah 56. This is what the Lord says, so this is God speaking. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Under my old lens, those verses were scary, because it's like, says what the Lord says, you better maintain justice and you better do what is right because his salvation, his coming is close at hand and his righteousness is going to be revealed and it will show you up for who you are. 
That was the old lens. But see, it's not about that at all. Because he says in verse 2, blessed is the man who does this. Okay, what does what? The man who holds fast, who holds, it fa- holds fast what? And then he says, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. That's got nothing to do with going to church on a Sunday, which, of course, we'd have a problem anyway if that was the... Or going to church on a Saturday. See, see, the Sabbath was never about a day. It was never meant to be a religious festival day. The Sabbath was the day, the seventh day, was when God finished all the work that he had been doing, and so he rested. said, I don't have to do any more to make this all it needs to be, and neither do you have to do anything to make it what it is. So in creation in Genesis, God makes man on the sixth day, on the seventh day God rested, that was the Sabbath, so if you kept the Sabbath, it meant you accepted that everything necessary for your success and for your prosperity had already been done. It was a day of resting in, not what you could do or would do or needed to do, but what had been done for you. And so Adam's first day was resting in what had been done for him. God has done all this, and it's for me simply to enter in. Hence, Jesus dies on the Friday, taken down off the cross, because the next day is the Sabbath. And what happened on the Sabbath? Absolutely nothing. He rose again the day after that, because he was resting. Why was he resting? Because of the words that he screamed out on the cross as he breathed his last, it is finished, right? That was the Sabbath, it is finished. So when he says here, blessed is the man who does this, who holds it fast, it's the one who does not desecrate the truth that when God had Jesus give his life on the cross and Jesus said it is finished for all time, for all things, in all ways, in all applications, for all kinds of people, it was forever finished and he calls all men to rest in that finished work and then the rest becomes the miracle of creation in our own lives from that point. And so he keeps his hand from doing any evil. That means keep your hand from doing anything which contradicts the thing celebrated by the Sabbath. And that's why I believe at times my hand has done evil because I've contradicted the thing that is celebrated by the Sabbath which says it is finished. So, let me finish this. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord. Was this man a foreigner? Has he bound himself to the Lord? Was he in under the old system? No. Let no foreigner who's bound himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. I love this. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. There's there's the deal. To the eunuchs who understand that even though they cannot change, someone else finished everything that was necessary for their total acceptance to the eunuchs. Now think, if you're the eunuch hearing this, I mean, you're not going to kind of mistake, well, what, what exactly does that mean? You know, the eunuchs, it's like, that's me. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, what pleases him, to live in the finished work, and who hold fast to my covenant, what's the covenant? The promise that it is finished. To them I will give within my temple walls, he's not allowed in, we've had to change the rules. To them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, how can he have a memorial when he's a eunuch? Because he's gonna produce nothing to remember him by, but listen to this, and I will give him a what? Give him a what? A name, why? Because he's a person, not a eunuch, not a foreigner, Not a black man, 
is a person. We're back to the key here. When accusation is removed, he can give him a name because he's a person, because he's not defined by his condition. He's not defined by what he does. He's defined by who he is as that person. And in that finished work of the Sabbath, God says, listen, I know your name. I'm bringing you in. Never mind what all that says. I'll give you a name better than sons and daughters. Or in other words, I'm bringing closer than them that think they've got it. I will give them, that's people like him, an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to worship him. All who keep the Sabbath, there it is again, the finished work, without desecrating it. That means not diminishing its, its, its full truth. Who will faster my covenant that God's promised to keep it. These I will bring to my holy mountain. Give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Sounds like he's in. But we had to change the rules. Because the Bible says, I've got my Bible verses, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that says. But can you see how in contrast to that, God says, okay, now let me tell you what the finished work does. Okay. I did that to show you the contrast. And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That is one of the most misrepresented verses. It does not mean a bunch of people will come together and fast and plead and beg God for revival. That is not what that means. He said, when the eunuchs in, when the foreigners in, when the dark-skinned person in, when the excluded people are in, when those who you've got your favorite Bible verse to keep out and judge and treat like a tax collector and a heathen, when all them are in, resting in the finished work, that's when my house is a house of prayer for all nations. Right? Understand it? We've opened the door to the people. And in case you want some authority on that, the Sovereign Lord declares. Right? So it's not Anth Chapman declares. The Sovereign Lord declares. He who gathers the exiles, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. All I can imagine by that is that, okay, he's given us the example here in Acts 8 of the eunuch, the dark-skinned foreigner, but he's saying he goes way beyond that, guys. Paint your own picture. You know, I just tried to show you there what was a typical picture in Acts chapter 8 of exclusion because way beyond that, if you'll understand them, make this a house of prayer because you celebrate the covenant of the Sabbath. Now, I want you to understand one more thing. I know I've gone on enough and said a lot, but it's necessary. You don't want to be watching telly or doing... This guy was still black. He was still a Gentile. He was still a foreigner. He was still a eunuch. It's important you get that. Otherwise, we try to make the guy something else other than the things that actually caused us the problem in the first place. Okay? He was still all these things. Do you know what? Because it wasn't Philip's business and it wasn't the Jewish priest's business to sort out this guy's color of his skin or or the fact that he was from another nation, or that he was a foreigner, or that he was a eunuch. It wasn't his issue to resolve that. It was issue, his issue to bring him into the finished work and let the finished work that was there create a house of prayer for all nations. The prayer is the expression that's going out to the nations, saying, okay, this is the prayer for you. The rules changed. What's the rule about me? Well, we don't, we don't, we don't do categorizing, so... Any rule that we could mention to you probably changed. Right? See the same grace. Just like Jesus couldn't be a priest because he was from the wrong family. 
he wasn't the right person, but God changed the rules. I get, you've got to get this. God changed the rules so Jesus could be a priest forever. Change the rules. God changes the rules. This, this God you've been told is, and that's it, who categorizes you now according to the rules, it's wrong. God sees you as a person and said the rules are just there for the contrast. The Bible says the law was given simply so that sin could be seen for what it is. But understand that he has not dealt with us according to our sin. Okay, So you did that to show us what it is, but then to tell us you've not dealt with us according to what it was you showed us that it is. Why? Because it was there for a contrast. Do you understand? A contrast. A contrast. So he still seems the same, but the wonder of grace comes through the revelation of acceptance outside of anything other than God's unconditional love towards me. This is an ungodlike God. It's a God of grace. That's why some, you know, some of these old hymn writers had it right. Some of them had it wrong. I've, I've sung some right nonsense now. That, but when the guy wrote, praise my soul, the king of heaven, to his feet your tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like we his praise should sing. He had a revelation. The revelation I love is when he says, here's what I want you to do. Praise with us the God of what? The God of grace. Praise with us the God of grace. Praise with us the God of grace. That's where God wants to be praised. And I hope that's helped you to put some grace on your own life by removing categorizing and out of it to release some grace onto the life of others so that this house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Amen? Yes. Amen. We're done. All right. Thank you, Father. You know, it's, you know it's my cry and you know it, it's, it, it's the desire of my heart that this house would be the house of prayer for all nations that you described here in, in Isaiah 56. We, we want to be it. We, we want to be the Philip on the road. We want our experience to be reaching the eunuchs, the foreigners, the, all those who we can give the good news that, that somebody said you were out but God changed the rules. And we believe in the God who changes the rules. The God who changes the rules because of the finished work of Jesus, because we're in the Sabbath, because we're in that which is already completed. Help us to live it, release it, and expose it to everyone we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You've been good listeners and very patient. And See you on Saturday, hopefully.